Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Harper Perennial, publisher of Drinking Closer to Home, the latest novel from Jessica Anya Blau. Jessica's debut novel, The Summer of Naked Swim Parties, was hailed as one of the best books of 2008 by the San Francisco Chronicle. It, too, is available from Harper Perennial. Uh, I should also mention Jessica has been a guest on this show, a very good guest, episode 6. Check it out. The Austin Chronicle, talking about drinking closer to home, has this to say, quote, The domestic relationships are brilliantly rendered, a contemporary California version of Philip Roth, end quote. And the New York Journal of Books says, quote, Jessica Anya Blau's sophomore effort is a raging success. With incredible insight and endless imagination, she has created the uber-dysfunctional family that survives cringeworthy encounters, yet manages to forge ironclad bonds, end quote. These are funny books. These are unexpected books. This is a funny, unexpected author who will move you. That's The Summer of Naked Swim Parties and Drinking Closer to Home by Jessica Anya Blau. Both are available from Harper Perennial. These are books. You can read them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Welcome to the program. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, before we begin, I want to plug the TNB Book Club Holiday Six Pack. You've heard me talk about it before on previous episodes, perhaps. Uh, here's how it works. If you sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club now, you get six books for under 10 bucks in December. It's an insane deal. It's a great gift idea. And uh, it helps uh, helps me keep this show going. So if you're looking for a gift for the book nerd in your life, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar, and sign up. It's, a, it's an amazing offer. So today's show, Dennis Cooper is the guest. Really great to have him here. He's a novelist. He's a poet. He's a critic. He's an editor. He's a performance artist. He's pretty much done it all, and he's done it on his own terms. He's run magazines, he's run public, you know, he's run uh, publishing imprints, he's written for Spin Magazine, an art forum, an interview, he's written poetry, he's written novels, uh, he's written for the stage, he's curating shows, he's doing it all, you name it. Uh, he lived in England, 
He's lived in Amsterdam. He's lived in New York City. He's from Los Angeles, and he lives in Paris now. And uh, he's going to be curating a show there at the Pompidou in early 2012. So fiction-wise, he's best known for the George Miles Cycle, which is an interconnected series of five novels inspired by his boyhood uh, boyhood friend and muse, uh, George Miles. And his most recent book is called The Marbled Swarm. It's a novel available now from Harper Perennial, today's sponsor. So, uh, you know, Dennis Cooper, writer of transgressive fiction, edgy, might be an adjective that gets bandied about. His work uh, often deals thematically with things like drug use, troubled teens, uh, the inadequacy of language, and it's often about the collision of sex and violence, much like the new Muppet movie. Just kidding. Uh, So, anyway, Dennis and I, we're going to be talking in just a moment, uh, but before I begin, I want to discuss some things that are on my mind, one thing in particular which is uh, atomization, the atomization of all things and all things media in particular. That's the honest truth of my day. I was talking with my agent earlier, and uh, we were discussing how everything seems to be atomizing and how it just keeps happening, it keeps growing and scattering, the media landscape in particular, and, and that just seems to be where we are right now. And what it makes me think of is sledgehammers. I'm thinking uh, of, you know, in terms of visual metaphors, I'm thinking of giant sledgehammers like a giant cosmic sledgehammer, um, like something you might see hovering over the crowd at a Pink Floyd show. So think, for example, of like the music industry and how it's been atomized and how it used to be run by record companies, these monoliths like uh, Capitol Records and Elektra in Columbia, and how those have been smashed or partially smashed or largely smashed. And then the record stores have been smashed, obliterated from the face of the earth, except for the rare few and then I think of how, as, you know, as consumers, we used to buy albums, we used to buy CDs and cassette tapes and 8-tracks, but those have been smashed into their component parts, and, uh, you know, we buy songs now. And many of us don't even buy songs. We, we stream them on Spotify. You know, and it makes me wonder, like, pretty soon we're going to be buying partial songs? Is that, is that how it's going to work? And then I think of MTV and how MTV has been smashed and all of its uh, music video content has been dispersed onto a million websites. And, uh, and of course, the same seems to be true with books and publishing and how publishing is in the process of, of being atomized. How the traditional old-school publishers, the, uh, the legacy publishers, the big six, whatever you call them, you know, they seem to be in the shadow of the giant sledgehammer as we speak. As uh, ebook sales rise and distribution is increasingly a moot point and authors are going solo and independent presses are sprouting up everywhere, you know, everybody's a publisher, everybody's an author, there are millions of blogs, millions of Twitter feeds, the constant linking and liking and all the rest on Facebook. Uh, you know, everybody's out there trying to hustle and build a readership and collect atoms and form a nucleus around their work. So that's a little breathless, but the point is I've been thinking about atomization and how everything's atomizing and everything seems to be getting smashed. And what does that mean? And so then this morning, I was reading this article about Apple, and I think this is what started it. And uh, it's about the possible launch of new Apple products. You know, what is Apple going to do? The buzz is building. It's the cultural ritual. You know, we, we seem to have a, we've ritualized it at this point. Everybody getting into a fever about Apple products, where everybody kind of sits around in front of their computers and waits for Apple to tell us what we want and uh, tell us what we need. You know, whether it's the, you know, the iPad 3 
or the iPhone 5. And uh, the thing that really got my head going this morning was reading about the ITV, which uh, is the new rumor that Apple is going to create kind of a television uh, television computer hybrid that uh, you know that hangs on your wall. It's it's going to be beautiful. This like flat screen, futuristic, sleek device, and uh, it doesn't even you know operate by remote control. Like maybe there's a touch screen. There's no external buttons or switches, but for the most part, it's voice controlled. You're talking to uh, Siri, the uh, the voice control girl, and she's at your service, and uh, you're going to be sitting there or standing there in your living room talking to your television, which is also a computer, which is also a stereo, which can also feature eBooks on the big screen, and you can tell it to do things. You can tell it to go to YouTube. You can tell it to read you a novel. You can tell it to schedule you an appointment or turn off your computer or go buy music for you at iTunes. That's a strange world to to imagine. Your television becomes your friend, becomes your slave, but then who's really the slave, right? That's what the science fiction authors have been warning us about. So, you know, it just I start to wonder about where we're headed. I don't mean to beat a dead horse. I know that uh this stuff gets talked about quite a bit and uh you know, it doesn't doesn't uh change the fact that it's it's interesting to to imagine a world in which content choices wedded with your television slash internet become almost infinite and you have anything you want all the time. It's sort of, it's almost like the realization, uh, of, of uh, infinite jest where you have this machine that can just leave you slack jawed and entertained 24 seven. And uh, as a writer, you just wonder how you find readers in that kind of world in that kind of, uh, environment, you know, and there's, it's the wild west. Everything has been smashed, and there's a part of me that really likes that. The big institutions, the big established structures uh, crumble and are replaced uh, you know, by smaller entities, and there's more freedom and more uh, innovation and all the rest. So there's a part of me that really likes it, but then there's, you know, there's also a part of me that is overwhelmed by the consequences, uh, you know, trying to ponder them and figure them out and decode them. And you know, sometimes it makes my brain freeze to contemplate the atomization of media one by one. It seems to be happening. Maybe TV's next. And, uh, you know, the irony is that I'm podcasting this to you. And uh, podcasting is essentially the atomization of radio because radio, too, has been smashed. Terrestrial radio in particular, which I think largely deserves it because terrestrial radio tends to suck. And, uh, you know, satellite radio smashed it, iTunes smashed it, podcasts continue to smash it. So, you know, you just sort of start to look at all this and then you start to, you know, think to yourself, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to me? I'm a writer. I'm a podcaster. I run an online magazine. Am I going to get pulverized? And, you know, then I, then I think about it a little bit more and it, it seems like in some ways it's already happening. When I look at my work... And the turns that it's taken, the unexpected ones, the cross-pollination, the multimedia, writing online, making podcasts, writing books, reading at live shows, trying to do marketing and PR to get the word out, using social media. You know, you get spread out. You get pulled apart. You get atomized. So it seems like we're all getting atomized, at least to some degree. And scientifically speaking, you know, if you really look at it under the microscope, you know, that's what we are. We're a scattering of atoms. And now I guess it seems like our media world is coming to reflect that, maybe. 
You know, I guess that's what's happening. And is it good? Is it bad? Do you know? I wish I knew. I don't really know. It's probably somewhere in the middle. Almost everything is probably somewhere in the middle. That's the way it seems. It seems like everything or almost everything is a gray area. Life in general to me is a gray area. And, uh, there's a hash bar in Amsterdam called the gray area. And, uh, Dennis Cooper lived in Amsterdam once. Did I mention that already? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so you're in Los Angeles. Indeed. Back home. Exactly. You were raised here. Born and raised. Spent most of my life here. And? And it's awesome. You like it. You're not I love, No, I love Los Angeles. I miss it. I'm in Paris all the time now, but I miss it every day. So You do? Hmm? Okay, because that sounds sort of idyllic to me. You're over in Paris. You're sort of living. I mean, it's easy to kind of romanticize that life. Oh, it's fantastic there. I mean, you know, I mean, no complaints. It's exquisite. But, uh, but you know, I was born and raised here. My friends are here. And I like to drive cars, and I like to be able to talk to people articulately and have them understand me. Like three-dimensionally. Like <laughs> well, also because, you know, I have friends there speak English, but it's not their first language. So, you know, I, I get tired of, like, saying something and then having them stop and make me explain what one of the words exactly means, the subtleties of it, you know. I know how fluent are you in French? Are you not fluent at all? And I, my comprehension is, is getting better and it's okay. But speaking, I, I try, but, um, French sounds extremely awful in my voice and I have a lot of respect. I'm a total Francophile. So I kind of, I think psychologically, I just decided not to, to, to damage the language by learning to speak it. So I speak very poorly and only under duress. And, um, but like maybe when you're drunk or something, can you do? I don't you, drink really. Oh, you don't. Okay. No. When I'm tired, maybe. <laughs> yeah. No. I just I, that's how I am. Like I can speak like uh, you know moderate Spanish and moderate French, and I'm always better when I've had a couple of drinks. Like suddenly I sound better. You know, it's, it's just been in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Los Angeles, like dialing it back to your childhood. Like, what kind of kid were you? Uh, nerdy, weird, really tall. I've been this tall since I was in sixth grade. No shit. So How tall are you? I'm like six one. You were six one in sixth grade. Yeah. Holy shit. I know. So I was like a total outcast. They call me the tall, the jolly green giant and stuff. So, so. Um, but but being six one's good. Not when you're in sixth not, grade. Not when you're in sixth grade. No, they, you're totally a freak. So, uh, but then eventually I grew into being cool, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, you know, I just I, I guess I was obsessed with television and music, and I was kind of a nerd, and you know, I, I, mean, I had friends, but not very many, and. 
I guess kind of the usual story. Like, so you were a bookish kid? Bookish, and, but I was really into television and music. I was super, super, in, always been super into music, but I was just obsessed with television. I don't know why. I was, I, like, I, like, uh, subscribed to all the trade papers. I don't know, and I was obsessed with, like, the ratings of my favorite TV shows, and I used to write letters to the network saying, do not cancel F Troop because it's the best <laughs> show ever, I think. Oh, wait, did you see uh, that Coen Brothers movie? The, 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 oh, God, what was it called? This, not The Single Man. That was the... Uh, oh, yeah, 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 sure, I saw it. The Solitary Man? Yeah, something like that. He, but yeah. he loved F Troop. His kids loved F Troop. I know. I was very, very touched by that. Yeah. I was a big F Troop kid. Okay. So what era was this of television? This was like... Late 60s. Late 60s. Like Get Smart, Batman, Man from Uncle, all those kind of Mission Impossible. Those were, those were your shows? Oh, there were others too. I like My Mother the Car. See, I have no... I don't even remember. <laughs> no, no, yeah. you wouldn't know it. I like I was into all the cult ones like F Troop, which were always on the bubble, you know, I was getting canceled. I was always, always into the... The the uh, you know the the fragile ones and you were and you were subscribing to like what Daily Variety and yeah Hollywood Reporter and all that stuff and yeah. keeping up with all of it yeah I don't know why I was just completely obsessive about it I, it doesn't make any sense to me because I don't give a shit about television now but um, but at the time it was like really a big deal to me yeah okay so then uh, as a teenager you started writing. Yeah, I, well, I was always writing, but when I was fifteen, I started getting like I started thinking of it as like what I wanted to do with my life. Wow, yeah. that's pretty early. Yeah, yeah, I just, uh, I, well, you know, I read Rimbaud when I was 15, and I read Saad, and I discovered French literature, and I saw that you could do this, these kind of visionary poetic things and stuff, and I don't know why that really appealed to me, so that made it better than what I had been doing, which is just, you know, what kids write, and uh, I don't know, I, I really, you know, who knows why you choose to do such things, but, but I just, I liked it also, because I was kind of a quiet, weird kid, so, I, you know, writing, you're alone, I don't have to deal with other people. When at 15, Rambo registered with you? Yeah, 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 because I read this interview with Bob Dylan in some magazine or something, because I liked him, and and he was talking about Rambo, and then I read it, and he was like, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the way a lot of people do, it's like, not only was the language, like, trippy, and I was doing a lot of drugs, you know, I was like a big druggie, so that appealed to me, like, the visionary, trippy stuff, and also, he was my age, you know, when he wrote it, so, you know, he was like, oh, hey. So, high school, you were doing a lot of drugs? Yeah. Like what kind of drugs? I was psychedelics. Oh, you were serious psychedelics fan. Okay, like some mushrooms, acid, all of it. Yeah, mostly acid because the acid was really, really good then. You know, that was the '60s, so I was really, really. Did you ever do acid and go to school? Sure, you did. Sure. Okay, like several times. <laughs> what else did people do? No, I, well, not everybody did it, but it was it was reasonably common back then. And 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 you were able to handle it. I just, I mean. Uh, I've had psychedelic experiences, you know, a handful, not in high school, yeah. uh, but I just, I hear stories of people having done that in, you know, those crowds and at school and like, I guess maybe at that age you just didn't even know better and you well, were able to pull it off. And well, I went to a really tiny school, it's called Flint Ridge Preparatory School, it's still here, it's in, uh, it's in La Cunada, and it was like really small, it was like 300 students and it went from like 4th grade to 12th grade, so it was not, you know, intense in that way, like lots of people, and also I was like a weird, I was like the school artist my friends and I were like the weirdos and we had a band and stuff so I think when um, when I would act bizarre and because of the drugs they just thought I was just bizarre and so they didn't really put two and two together I mean I had a, you know some borderline freakouts there but nothing that ever got me kicked out of school well and there was less of a frame of reference then too for what you were doing yeah exactly you know what I'm saying like if I see somebody in there you know finger painting on the side of a building or something I might have a night you know what i'm saying yeah exactly it's you're exactly right that's kind of cool actually because you had you were kind of free in that way like yeah. nobody quite knew what was what was happening 
Yeah, they, I mean, there was the teachers were very suspicious of the whole hippie thing and and the music and all that stuff. And I was bring, carrying around like you know these, these brainy books and stuff. But but yeah, they just kind of left us alone. They were more worried about us influencing the other students. That was the big thing was that we were gonna you know turn the other students into crazy kids or something. It was like contagious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so what about your folks? Like how were they? Uh, how did you relate with them when you were growing up? Um, uh. Pretty distanced. I mean, uh, my dad wasn't really around, and my parents got divorced when I was really young, and th- and there was this big battle between them for years, divorce battle, and those ugly divorce things. So I didn't really see my dad too much. And my mom was like a really big drinker and kind of an insane person. So at that point, and so um, so it, she was a very unstable house. So I just um, I'm, I actually ended up spending a lot of time just crashing at my friends' houses and stuff, and I didn't really relate to them at all. So. Okay. And then what what happens? You dropped out of school? Did you drop out? No. I got kicked out of school. I got kicked out of that school I was just describing. Um, they kicked all my friends out, and they couldn't get me because I was really wily, and they never could catch me with drugs or anything. But they kicked me out because I was a vegetarian. You're kidding me. No, that was the reason they kicked me out. That was actual grounds? Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah, they just thought they thought that was like I don't know. They were looking for anything, and it was like that was just like weird, and that it, I might influence the other students to be vegetarian. I know it's bizarre, but so I got kicked out of school, and then I went to a public high school for the last year. So I, I know I never, uh, no, I only went to one year of university and quit, but but I, I finished high school. Okay, so you finished high school, and then you went on to uh, what was it? I'm going to mispronounce it. Is it Pitzer? Or? Yeah. Well, I went to P- Pasadena City College for a few years just because I didn't really want to go to school, but I did take class, poetry classes. And then I went, yeah, for one year to Pitzer. It's just Claremont Colleges. Okay. And then, and all that time, are you beginning to write, I mean, write poetry with the idea of collecting it and publishing it? I mean, like, when did you really make the shift into, you know, this is what I'm doing and I'm going to publish books and oh I, I wanted to do that when i was 15 so i always thought of, and i wanted to be it was always fiction you know but uh but I, I wanted to write these really experimental complicated you know visionary books or whatever so and it took and i was no good i wasn't anywhere close to being as, as talented as one would need to do that so i get really frustrated and stuff and then but the poetry was a little easier just because it's you know it's shorter and i don't know i and I could relate it to like song lyrics and things I like. So, so that started being published more. And I, I published my first, I self published my first book in 1973 when I was like, what would I have been like 19? So then I was already publishing by the time I went to college and, and university and I was just sending them out to magazines and, and stuff. And yeah, but I was totally on the track of wanting to publish. So you self published that first book at age 19 in yeah. 1973. Yeah. What was self publishing like in 1973? Like what did it involve? Um, uh, typing on a typewriter and then taking it to an offset printer and having it printed. And then basically, I mean, it barely got out, thank God, because uh, I didn't know how to distribute books or anything. I think I put an ad in, like, the L.A. Free Press or something, which was this paper at the time, and maybe one other place. And then I would go into stores with that under my coat, and I would just slip it onto the shelves. It was haphazard, but, but um, somebody ordered it, and then they got interested in my poetry, and that's actually led what led to me being published for real because they saw the book, so... Okay, and then uh, like when when did you come out? Like, were you out like all throughout childhood, or did, was it like after you left high school? Or you mean being gay? Yeah. Oh, uh, my parents, my mother, when she was in her like big bad drinking crazy phase, um, started snooping around my room, and she found my diary in which I was describing things I was doing and things I wished I was doing, 
and uh, she read it for a month every day when I went to go to school and wouldn't tell me. And then one day I woke up and she said, you're not going to school. We're taking you out of that school and you're going to see a psychiatrist this morning. So I, I was busted. And I must have been about 13 or 14, I guess. And, um, and, um, but luckily the psychiatrist was a cool guy and he's like, just tell her it was a phase. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so everything was okay. But after that I was kind of out. So, um, I mean, I didn't run around school wearing, you know, like signs of, it said I was gay or anything, but I mean, all my friends knew and it wasn't like a big secret after that. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe that would be, that's better. You know, the earlier, the, the earlier, the better. I mean, sure. you know, I mean, I guess if sure. you're out publicly in a high school where yeah. they're intolerant of vegetarians, it might not be yeah. ideal. But then again, yeah. it's like, I, I just, I always think it's better the earlier people, yeah. you know, come out. Do you agree? Yeah, I totally agree. And in my situation, this, it was an all boys school and all kinds of hanky panky was going on there. And the teachers were all like gay pedophiles and stuff so it wasn't they you know they left me alone they knew and uh also it was weird because you know back then it was like the 60s and the hippies but there was no like gay liberation or anything so so being gay it didn't really mean it just meant like you were odd or something nobody had a it wasn't like a general identifier where where when when if i said if they knew i was gay they'd go oh well you're like this they'd just go like oh you're like gay like sort of like that stuff that Lou Reed sings about in the Velvet Underground, you know that kind of stuff, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, you know it's strange. Like when you say that there were like uh, you know there was weird stuff going on or pedophilia in your high school with the teachers and stuff. Like I think back to my high school, and uh, there were there was some of that, and it was like very open. Oh really? There were like teachers having rela- you know not not a ton, but there were some teachers like having relationships with students, and everybody sort of knew it. Mm. And nothing was really done. It's a different time, totally. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, no, everybody kind of knew it. And, uh, like, one of the teachers, there was this teacher, uh, Mr. Benton, he was, like, the Russian teacher. And he was boyfriends with this guy who was an English teacher. And everybody knew it. And they would, and, and he, and they had a big fight. And the Russian teacher, like, blew his brains out in the classroom. And because his boyfriend had dumped him. And it was all, everybody knew why all these things were happening. In front of the students? No, no. Oh. It was an empty classroom. Okay. Yeah, so it was, so, I mean, it was, it was, it was a strange school in that sense. Very repressive, but at the same time, all this bizarre stuff was going on. Do you know, have you ever been back since you left? Yeah, the, the, there was a Dutch documentary about me, like, maybe 10 years ago. And they, they took me there and walked me around, had me talk about everything. So, but it's a, it's a mixed school now. It's still there, but it, now it's girls and boys. Okay. Yeah. So it's changed probably quite a bit. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. So, uh, describe like your time in Los Angeles post college or when you were, you know, when you were young man rising up and uh, beginning to publish books. Well, right after I went to college, left college, I punk had started and I went over to Europe and spent a lot of time over there and in the UK cause I wanted to check all that out cause I thought it was like, totally exciting. So I did that and then I came back here and I started this little magazine called little Caesar, which was this, um, kind of punk literary magazine. And, um, and uh, so that's I got really involved in, in literary stuff right away. I started publishing more magazines and books of mine started coming out. And uh, but and I was really just I was very very into punk and I was very much involved in that scene. What what drew you in? I mean, do you have a can you can you nail it down or I mean, is it just the obvious stuff? Well, I don't know. I never really related to the hippie thing very much, and I and I I wasn't interested in Prague or in, in any of that. But I did like and glam was kind of interesting too. I liked glam, you know, that whole thing. But but I don't know. There was something about punk that was just so. Um, I guess emotionally, I thought it was extremely interesting. I liked the the way it was like kind of repressed but really explosive. And 
I like the tightness of the music and the chaotic sound of the music and things and the aggression in it and the sadness in it and stuff. I don't know. I think emotionally I, re- I responded to it. And I think aesthetically I just really liked the music. It reminded me of things I had liked from earlier, like the Stooges and things that I that, that, were, that were the things that I had related to in the early 70s. So. Well, then what about – okay. So I, I hear that you you know you have this background where – you know, you're this big fan of punk, and then I look at your uh, literary career, and so much of what you've done has been outside of the establishment, or has been, um, you know, just actively DIY. That's kind of got a punk ethos, or you know, if that's what you want to call it. And did that come from your exposure to the music, or were you doing that stuff prior to the the punk, you know, explosion? And it just so happened that you had things in common with it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think the idea of doing that really appealed to me. Um, and I had done a little bit with like publishing my own book or something, but I mean, there's no question that like the, the zines and all that stuff completely influenced my thinking about that, you know? And also I, I mean, I've discovered anarchy and cause I'm, I consider myself an anarchist and that I can't, I got that through punk. And so it, it was huge in that sense for me. And you still consider yourself an anarchist? Yeah. What now? What does that entail? I mean, well, I mean, it's a philosophy rather cause I mean, it's completely impractical to be a punk. I mean, to be a punk with <laughs> that too, but to be <laughs> a, an anarchist and I'm a very realistic kind of pragmatic person. So I don't really ever think that, you know, I mean, you know, I, I love Occupy Wall Street and all that, but I don't think capitalism is going to. I'm not. I'm not utopian, so it's just it's just a matter of like trying to live your life along certain principles. Like when you get power, you should immediately disperse it, and to realize that like people, it, it's just like it's a kind of an idealistic way to think about people because it, it, you think of people as being corrupted when they're bad people or whatever. They're corrupted by the system in which they're enmeshed. And it's, it's all, you know, power structures are what corrupt people and stuff. So it's kind of a very idealistic way to be. But I just try to live my life in that way and and, uh, and not, you know, just try to give things as much as possible, try to share as much of whatever I've gotten with people. It's just kind of really basic stuff like that. Now, where did now, and where did this originate? Was there something that you read or someone that you... Well, it was just the it was just the references to it in punk, and probably the Sex Pistols was the start of it. But that was a kind of a, you know, there was a, they were, there was a, 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 a adoption of, of anarchism, you know, in sometimes really just cosmetic ways in that period. But it, it led me to read about it and uh, and stuff. So I read, you know, Emma Goldman and all those guys, and I thought, oh, you know, this totally suits like my thinking about the world. So I just always, since then, I've always felt like that was the only really that was the only kind of like viewpoint or philosophy that I completely felt like that was that it was good. I, I agree with everything about it. Well, no, and that's interesting because it's like, you know, it's been sturdy enough to hold up over time, too. Yeah. Well, it can be anything, too. You can be, there's a billion different kinds of anarchists, too, and I like that about it. It's not like a Marxist where you have to have these, you know, these certain things you have to do or, you know, you have a certain idea. Like, like it's all, it's not dependent on the future the way like Marxism is. It's like you're always, your goal is to set up the, you know, sort of the proletariat, blah, blah, blah. With anarchism, you can just live your life, you know, in a basic way and, and uh, treat other people well and, and stuff. And, um, uh, and I, that appeals to me too, that it's like, you can invent your own form of it. Every person is a, it can invent their own form of it. Okay. And so, you know, because I think somebody who just hears anarchy, they automatically assume like, you know, people throwing Molotov cocktails and, you know, jumping on cars and tipping them over or whatever. Yeah. 
that's that's not what you're talking about. Well, that's one way to do it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I you know, I, I don't question their anarchism. I mean, that's they they you know they want to actually have a physical change. And they really want the world to become anarchist. And they really want to destroy the systems and all that kind of stuff. And that's that's cool. And I mean, it's, I totally admire that. But I'm just a, a bit t- too pragmatic for that. So I'm just more interested in doing it in my work or in my dealings with other people or whatever. You know, I have this blog and I kind of run that along anarchist principles of like you know it's like there's no money involved and i share the space with everyone and that kind of stuff okay um and i want to get to that because i think your blog is really fascinating but um before we get there i want to continue a bit with like the just the the biography timeline like you're you're um fascinated with punk you're doing this magazine and like how much contact with uh all the bands of that era did you have like were you working with them were you you know going to tons of shows obviously and you know how how deeply uh, enmeshed were you with that whole scene well i was really into i was a i was mostly an observer you know i mean i had a lot of friends who were in bands uh but um and i got to know some of the people in the bands and i was running the 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 events the kind of event series at this place called beyond baroque and Venice, and, and I would do, like, readings, or I would do music performances, so I would have, you know, X and Wall of Voodoo and, and bands like that play there, but, I mean, and, but I didn't, like, I never changed, in, you know, my look into, like, that kind of look, um, it was, so I was mostly just, like, going to see them and paying attention to them, and then sometimes I would talk to them, and, but, um, most of my friends were, were artists, like, I was, you know, I mean, I knew, like, Mike Kelly and Graham Pettibone, and those people, that was kind of more my scene than the, the actual musicians, but some of them. No, what about L.A. back in those days? Like, well, you know, how much has it changed? You know, what was it like back then? Is it pretty much the same, different? Mm-hmm. I mean, can you, can you pinpoint ways? It's kind of been the, it's kind of the same, you know. It just goes, it doesn't really like, it's not like there's some major shift that's like unchangeable. It's like, it just changes, it just goes in these waves, you know, where there's this kind of, all this activity and then it kind of, there's all this exciting things going on and then it kind of dies out for a while. And you see that with the music a lot. It's like these periods where LA music is really like incredibly exciting and then it just kind of goes bleh for a while and then it happens again, like with the smell and things like that recently. And, and, um, um, uh, so I don't think it really has changed that much. The only difference is, the only thing is where people gravitate to it. It's like it used to be people were on the west side and then they're on the east side and they move around. So different parts of the city become kind of the hot spots. Like when I was, when I was doing Beyond Baroque, it was much more the west side was where people were. Everybody I knew lived on the west side. And then they moved to Hollywood, and then they kind of eventually went to Silver Lake, and now they're all in Highland Park. So Yeah, no, it just keeps moving east. <laughs> exactly. It just keeps moving east. Exactly. Uh, so you, you eventually left L.A. for? New York. For New York. And when was this? 83. 83. And what prompted that? Um, just kind of wanted to get out of here. And also, I was really serious about writing and and i had some writing friends here but i had a lot of really good friends in new york and i wanted to go like hang out in the scene there because it was a more developed scene and i really liked the new york school poets and um and stuff so i i just i just kind of wanted to see what it was like to live there and also i mean i thought maybe it would help me get published or something and but it was mostly just to be around like uh poets i admired or poets who were were really like you know doing it is because most of my friends here were were like me we were young and we were just starting out and a lot of people there like you know i got to meet john ashbury and all these people and hang out with them and so um that that was pretty exciting so uh, yeah i just wanted to where where did you meet ashbury um the very first time i went to new york to read the writer edmund white said uh had a dinner for me and he said um 
I'll invite anybody you want if you want someone to meet someone. I said, I want to meet John Ashbery because he's always been like really important to me. And so I, he brought him to dinner and I met John that night. So. Wow. He just got an award. He just got a big award. He's always getting awards. Yeah. He's just got a closet full of awards. He's a god. Yeah. <laughs> so when you say that you had a lot of friends in New York, like, yeah. you know, you were based in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, how did you, I mean, were they friends that you had grown up with here or they were, they were friends you'd made through the years? Like, I'm, I'm curious how the community connection, you know, from one coast to the other worked back then. It was a literary thing. It's because I was doing this magazine, Little Caesar, and uh, um, it had gotten pretty popular. People really liked it because the punk, it was like a combination of punk kind of spirit and then it had poetry and writing, and then it had interviews, and we didn't, but like I it was getting hip enough that like Andy Warhol gave me something, and Johnny Rotten gave me something, and it was kind of cool. So through that magazine, I, a lot of people kind of got to know me, and they were interested in what I was doing, and so I made a lot of friends through that, and uh, and then people who liked my, it was mostly like younger poets. Uh, there was a kind of cross LA New York thing where the, the, the LA poets were bringing the, the I was like I was bringing the New York poets out here to read it beyond Baroque and then we'd go out and read there so it was it was, it was pretty much entirely literary at that point yeah but the magazine was the connector it kind of was yeah okay because nowadays it's you know it's obviously like the blog and the web and yeah. you know you can immediately do it but the yeah but those are like they don't have a location that's what's so beautiful about it right I mean I had no idea that your site was here you know it's just you don't know you know and uh, people always assume I'm in New York yeah, I didn't know where you were because, I mean, you know, those sites are all over the place. And those guys I know, like, it took me, I mean, it was a long time before I was like, Blake Butler was in Atlanta. You know? Right. I mean, it's like, so, and that's what's so beautiful about it. But back then it was like, vocation was really important. So, like, the magazine was printed in Los Angeles and it came, and so that was, it's, it's identity was a Los Angeles identity. Right. And so you get to New York and was it, I mean, it sounds like you adjusted pretty easily. It wasn't like it was that jarring. You kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> I did enjoy it, but you know, that was right when AIDS was starting. So it was like a really big shift suddenly thing. You know, people were dying, getting sick and it was, it got depressing pretty quickly. And, uh, and I actually left, I had to get out of there cause it was just, and I was always doing way too many drugs and things and it was just about a mess so i went to amsterdam to kind of, <laughs> that's where you kick yeah drugs. i know but, but i don't like pot so i thought it'd be okay when i, I thought it would be all right hash and i don't like hash and pot so but it didn't work out that way but so i went there for a couple of years just to sort of chill out and work and actually started writing my novels there uh, and that's where you really i mean that was that like a that was a super productive period yeah i was really isolated and i and i i because I'd always wanted to write this five, the, the cycle, the George Miles cycle, these five novels, and I've been planning it and planning it and planning it for years. But when I got there, I was so isolated. And I had so much time that I actually did sit down and like start it and get it planned out and get it going. So that really helped me being there. Okay, so you're in Amsterdam. Hmm. What part of town are you in? Do you know the area? Kind of. The pipe. I don't know that. It's you know where the Heineken Brewery is. Yeah. Okay. It's I mean, like, we were on some. I mean, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't overspeak it. I mean, my wife yeah. and I were there for a few days, and we stayed on one of the canals. And if you said it, it would ring a bell. It's like you know, it's where like you know where the the Leitze Plain is and all that stuff, where all the hotels are and everything. Yeah. It's just a little bit further out than that, and it's it's kind of the hip area now. But at the time, it wasn't. But but it it um, yeah, it's called the Pipe. Okay. And so, how are you living there? I mean, did, were you selling books and just floating somehow? I mean, were you living pretty frugally? Frugally and just. Yeah. I was writing a lot of journalism. Okay. So I was making a little money from the journalism. And then my parents would lend me money sometimes if I was really broke. But 
but I didn't have that much money. It was really, really cheap to live there then. It's kind of like a monastic existence where you're really focused on writing. Yeah, and, and a few other things. But yeah. <laughs> like, what, what, what are the few other things? Oh, just, you know, a little bit too many drugs and sex and stuff. But, you know, what can you do? Yeah. When, and you're in Amsterdam. What year is this? These are like the mid to late 80s? Or? 85 to 87. 85 so two and a half years. Yeah. It's a great town. It's really dull if you live there. Is it? Incredibly dull. I was thinking, oh, you just ride bikes everywhere. And yeah, but it's it's a very small town. You yeah. see the same people all the time. There's nothing to do. Unless you you know want to go to the red light district or smoke pot all the time, it's really, really dull. And I, I mean, I like people there, and I like the people. It's a great city, but I would never recommend living there unless you want to sit down and write and not do anything else. Okay. So what kind of – give me a, a snapshot of what kind of place you were in. Were you in like a studio? Were you in an apartment or – Oh, no. I was actually – it was actually this um, – my boyfriend at the time who I went over there to be with, uh, there was that as well. Um, he had a friend who had this apart- – who rented apartments out. He owned this building. And the, and the, there was a, an apartment had become free because the guy who had lived there – before, this guy named Willem Gortmacher, I can't believe I still remember his name, he had gone completely insane and stabbed someone, and they'd committed him to a mental institution. He said, you can have the apartment, it's really cheap, because... But he said, the guy might break out of the mental institution and come back. And I still had the key. So I went in there, and there was, like, when I got there, all of his stuff was there, and there was, like, drawings of, like, people's faces with, like, knives stuck through them. And he would write letters from the insane asylum to himself at his address that would arrive, like, every single day for the two years I was there. And I was always living in terror that he would suddenly just, like open the door because he it, but uh, he never did but so it, but it was really cheap that was why i got to have i it. think i would remember his name too yeah it's <laughs> not that odd <laughs> yeah yeah oh man that's crazy okay no. so for, so for two years three years you're there two and a half two and a half and how much writing did you do like i wrote closer my first novel so i wrote the whole novel there yeah whoa and i started frisk a little bit of frisk there and and otherwise you were you were fairly bored with it yeah, I just went to see bands every single night. There was this, this, this club, great club there called Paradiso, and like every band was going through there, and it was a great time for music. So you I know, saw Willie Nelson at Paradiso. Oh yeah, I love that years club. ago. Yeah, it's Fantastic. like a church. It's yeah, like exactly. Old, yeah, beautiful place, and uh, and it was a great time for music because that was like you know the Swans and you know, Sonic Youth and Butthole Surfers. It was like really awesome stuff going on. So I just go see bands every single night. Basically, is what I did. Well, and then what happens after that? You you finish closer, and then you go out with it, and move back to the states, or you move to? Yeah, yeah. I sent it to a, a friend of mine. Was I didn't have an agent, but a friend of mine was sending it around to publishers, and um, and everybody was rejecting it. And then finally, some this guy who worked at Grove, who liked my work, got Grove to do it, and Grove was um, accepted it, but said like we really would like you to come back to New York if you're you know just to help promote the book. So I moved back to New York, and uh, I got a job. Not very well paying job, but I was writing for Art Forum for a while regularly every month. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you've written, and Art Forum is not the end of it. I mean, you're, you talk about your journalism career. You've written for a lot of different magazines. For a while, I was doing a lot in the 90s, especially. I was writing for Spin. Uh, I was like a, a contributing editor of Spin, so I wrote a lot there. And yeah, a whole bunch of places, interview magazine and places. I was yeah, that was like my income, so I was doing it a lot. Yeah. So it's like I mean, it's like a domino effect to get these jobs. I mean, once you get one, you start to meet people. And I mean, you're living in New York. Is that how it happened? Like, how, how do you become a contributing editor at Spin? Um, the guy who ran the magazine then, this guy named Craig Marks, was really really interested in having writers write for the magazine, and he liked my novels. And uh, he, uh, so he brought in me and William Volman and David Foster Wallace and some really interesting people in to write for the magazine for while he was there. So that's what got me in. I mean, pretty much with all my all my journalism, after a certain point, 
it's because um, of, because people like my fiction and they think it's like an interesting idea. You know, I mean, I, I did done a lot of interviews and it's always like, oh, what an interesting idea to have Dennis Cooper interview so and so. You know, it's like my identity as a writer becomes part of the appeal of having me do it, you know. But then but then people will turn me down because of my identity. Like Trent Reznor refused to be interviewed by me and Marilyn Manson refused to be interviewed by me. Why? Because I think because they thought I would, like, call them on their whatever stuff or that I would say, like, you're not hardcore enough or whatever. Would you have? No, not necessarily unless they weren't. Yeah. No, I didn't have any agenda, but they wouldn't. Like, Larry Clark wouldn't let me interview him because he thought I was going to say he was gay. And it's like, I don't care if you're gay. I don't but, but people would know who I was, and they would. Sometimes it would be appealing, but sometimes they'd be like, "No, I don't want him to do the piece." Huh? Refuse, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, it was weird. Like Marilyn Manson's worried that you're going to call him out as not being hardcore enough. <laughs> That's, that was the impression I got. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so uh, New York, the book comes out. You're promoting it. Yeah. Uh, and then what? And you're doing journalism with yeah. Art Forum. Like, what happens next? Then things started to settle into what it, my life became, you know, I'm just writing and and doing journalism and doing fiction. And I then started working on performance art stuff because I do a lot of theater stuff in, in France now. And uh, I did some then in New York and uh, with, in the performance art scene. And then I moved back to L.A. after a while because I got tired of New York again. And, yeah, it's just been, you know, after that I became very focused on the novels. Yeah. That became, like, my thing is that I, working on the novels. And then, and you know that and then i started the blog and moved to paris and then everything kind of shifted a little bit but it's still i don't know that's where you, your life sort of settles in you get this routine you know what you do so so how old were you when you felt like things settled um i think when i moved to la probably in 1990 the beginning of the 90s because i published a couple of books and 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 it went they were very controversial but they did okay and they got reasonably good response and i sort of felt like okay and my and grow press was very supportive and they kept publishing me whatever i did and so i felt like okay i felt secure enough that i was like okay this is what this is i'm happy doing this and this is what i'm gonna do it's, it, yeah so you had like a home yeah. as a writer yeah that's nice yeah it's awesome you know and after years i mean the the in the previous years you had basically been doing it on your own yeah essentially or, or publishing in magazines yeah and then little press little presses would put out a book or another one would put out another little book or something but yeah yeah no and grove had been you know i my dream you know had been to publish with grove press because all my favorite writers were published by grove press back in the 60s and stuff so like so, who oh you know burroughs beckett you know Genet. everybody was published by grove press in the 60s frank o'hara i mean it was like the best press if you liked experimental work or you know, Rob Grier, all my favorite writers are published there. I mean, by the time I got there, that was kind of over because Barney Rossett no longer ran the press, but it still had that spirit, and they were publishing Kathy Acker and some of the people I really liked. So did you ever meet Burroughs or any of those guys? Oh, yeah. I met, yeah, I, yeah. You did. Tell me, <laughs> come on, tell a story. Oh, no. Um, yeah, I knew Ginsburg because he, he really, liked supported my work, uh, was very nice about it, and his creepy way but <laughs> i think there were other agendas going on but when i was very young he was very into my poetry and uh and then um so i knew him and uh with william burroughs i mean i always really admired his work and stuff but there was this kind of weird thing happened where um okay i had this boyfriend and he's actually writing his memoir about this right now so i guess it's okay to talk about it but he was boyfriends with alan ginsburg and for like his like longtime partner or did they, no, they have like, fling? They were well, it was a relationship, but it hadn't gone on that long. Okay, but uh, and then he met me and he dumped Alan Ginsberg for me, and um, and Alan wasn't too happy about it. But but the thing was, he said, okay, but you have to understand that at the same time, I've already started having this thing with Burroughs because 
Alan set me up with William, so I, I'm going to, if it's okay, I'm going to be going out to see William uh, in Lawrence every you know few months and spend a weekend with him or a week with him. And I was like, okay. So I, I knew Burroughs. I met him a few times, and he was very kind to me, and, and, and it was nice. But, but there was this weird sharing the boyfriend thing between us. <laughs> but I didn't really have much contact with him personally, but I would you know hear all about him through my boyfriend when yeah. he came back. It was always so strange to me that he was just living in Lawrence. I mean, I know he's from the Midwest, but just Lawrence. Yeah. He's living in Lawrence, Kansas. For the, a good chunk of the last part of his life, or the, yeah. definitely the last part of his life. Well, he was quite—he was pretty old by then, you know. Even you know, he was old for a long time. <laughs> I think he just, you know, I think it was too much New York and all that. He just didn't want to deal with all that stuff anymore. Yeah, yeah, he's done with it. Yeah, exactly. So, how did you meet uh, Alan Ginsberg for the first time? Like, were you just at a party, or like, socially, you guys? No, in uh, something like 1975 or something, there was a big reading in San Francisco called, uh, by this magazine called Gay Sunshine that was just around at the time. And it was like all these gay writers and it was like Allen Ginsberg and I don't think Burroughs was there but John Retchie and a bunch of big names and then a bunch of younger upcoming people which included me and this guy Robert Gluck and a few other people. And we and so we were the opening act for the big names. So he saw me read and he was just all, you know, uh, you know, come, 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 come. <laughs> That's what he was like. But he also was very, he also supported my poetry, you know, until he got realized I wasn't going to put out and he kind of like lost interest. But that's how I met him at this reading. Gotcha. Yeah. And then would you see him later and like later on and like I'd run into him and stuff, you know, I mean, I, I was never like, to be honest, you a big fan of his poetry. So, but you know, I'm just nice that he was, you know, it was interesting to know him a little bit. Well, okay, and then you've done, I mean, you've done so much stuff. <laughs> like when I look at, you know, I look at kind of the catalog, and it's not just books. I mean, it's poetry, it's fiction, it's journalism, uh, nonfiction, and then it's also performance art. Right. And you're living in Europe, and you're curating shows at, like, the Pompidou, and, I mean, right. you're doing a lot of stuff, Dennis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I'm... Um... I, I'm a workaholic a little bit. I was going to say. Yeah. Like, are, I mean, do you sleep? I mean, do you, are you are you one of those people who gets yeah. like five hours of sleep a night? Or? No. I have to have eight. You have to have eight. Yeah. No, I just, I don't know. I just like working. Uh, so I'm just always, I always like to keep busy. So, and I'm, I'm good at juggling stuff, I guess. And then what about uh, like the performance aspect? Like what, what are these performance art pieces like? Like, can you describe? Well, the ones I'm doing right now are, uh, it's this director named Giselle Vienne. She's a French director. And, and I've been collaborating with her since 2004, and we've done a series working on our seventh piece now. And they're, they're theater works. I mean, they go from being small pieces to very large. And it's uh, she directs them, and I write them. And um, Stephen O'Malley, you know, he's from the band Sun. Do you know him? I don't know. The Doom. They do, they're like a Doom band. And um, this guy, Peter Rayberg, who runs the label Migo Records, which is a big experimental kind of music label. He do, they do the music, and then we just keep making them. And they're very, very successful in Europe, and they're touring all over the world and stuff. But they haven't—we've barely done them here, just because nobody here has money to bring them over. Because some of them are very large productions. But they're—they're they're like kind of trippy, very visual um, theater works, movement and text and stuff. Okay, and and so you're not performing in them; you're writing them. No, there's a piece that I used. To, I I, um, I did performance art in this '80s with this choreographer named Ishma Houston Jones, and we did like five pieces together. And then the very first piece we made in 1983 called "Them" has just been revived, and I actually perform in that, and that's touring around now. We're doing it in Paris soon, and so so I'm I'm actually in that one, but no, I'm not really a performer at all. And then what kind of what kind of tour? Like all over Europe, kind of thing. For for the the theater pieces or for them is it? Them? Oh, them is um yeah it's it's been in New York twice and then it went to Utrecht at some dance festival and it's going to Paris and then 
there's other ones too I don't remember there's a manager that does this and there's a US tour coming up next year Okay. And what do you do when you perform? I mean, you say you're not a performer, but you're, you're performing in it. Well, I read. I stand on stage and read, basically. Okay. And then people dance, and there's, like, live music. And so you yourself are not, like, dancing and singing? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> no, not like that at all. Yeah, I can't do that either. No. I start to sweat just thinking about, like, no. the possibility. Exactly. Um, well, that's cool. And then the, the show that you're curating at the Pompidou? It's like a festival. Okay. It's a huge festival. It's like uh, it's called Un Novo Festival, and it's from February to March, in February and March, and uh, it's like everything. It's like visual art, movies, lectures, installations, and you get stuff. to pick. Yeah, me and Giselle are cur- curating it together. Okay, so how, so it's. I mean, this sounds like. I mean, you're an expatriate living in Paris, but it sounds like you know you're somewhat wired into the art scene over there. I mean, if you're getting asked to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, the, the theater stuff has, has been. I mean, I'm no. I'm, I'm. They like my work in France, so I'm. I'm known over there, and uh, and then the theater work has been very, very successful. So, you know, there's a having us do it there in France is actually clout to have these cool people do it. So, so yeah, but I'm. I'm. Yeah, I'm. I stay pretty connected with stuff there. I don't really. I haven't been writing art criticism for a while, but. But I'm still really involved in that world and interested in it. Okay, and then what about you know? You mentioned that uh, the French like your work. Um, do you? sense that you know french people are you know have a warmer embrace for uh, i mean not not only for your work but for literature in general or do you, do you know do you know what i'm saying like in europe is it is it a better uh, situation for writers are they more appreciated yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean i can't speak so much for the rest of europe but it seems the same there but yeah in france i mean if you're a writer you're a really important person I mean, if you're a good writer, yeah. um, but I mean, they're treated very seriously there and, you know, you know, I mean, they revere their, their, their great writers and you're, you know, um, yeah, you're treated with a lot of respect and my stuff, what I do here, my stuff seems very, you know, outrageous or weird or something, but you know, over there, I mean, what I'm doing is, you know, it, it's connected to all kinds of people who are considered important from the past, whether it's like Genet or Bataille or any of those guys. They can see what I'm doing, and it's not outrageous at all. They just like say, "Oh, you're working in the tradition." Of the right. People. They understand like the lineage. Right. So you know, and then do you? I, mean, I guess you probably get asked a lot about the, you know, the elements of your work that some might consider outrageous, and then your actual life. Yeah. It seems like there's obviously a, a big difference. I mean, you know, yeah. so how do you reconcile the two? You know. To me, I only write about the fantasy and the imagination. I don't write about real things. So, but I just give them a, a realistic veneer so that you know, so that it's you know, comfortable and seductive and stuff. But I, but it, to me, it's not about real things. I'm almost always in my books. It's at it, it, some point, it's you realize that it's not necessarily really happening. That it's that's it's happening in the heads of the characters, or it's happening in some situation where you know, I'll have these things happen in like a set from a movie i'll do all kinds of things to make it not completely realistic because i I don't see them as being realist at all i see them as being i mean that's part of the seduction is that they seem real and that pulls you in but there's so many things in it that could not possibly happen in the real world so it's a real distinction for me and and do you have a sense of why you're drawn to i mean that's just how it works for you i mean people don't know why they are the way they are creatively i mean you know what I'm saying? Like why you're drawn to the fantastical or like uh, complete works of the imagination, the way that you, you talk about it. I don't know. I just but when I was a kid, I just always was really drawn to this really dark stuff. I mean, I was always really drawn to like the sex violence axis. Even when I was a little kid, I had nightmares about it, and and uh, and I have no idea where it came from because I wasn't abused or anything, and I wasn't like a violent kid. I was just this weird nerd. But I was always really, really, really interested in that, and. Uh, 
Um, I was really interested in it because it, it, it's really confused me because I find it kind of exciting and erotic, and it also I found it absolutely terrifying. And I don't know. I guess it just it just it's conf- when I was young it confused me so much, and I wanted to figure out why what this meant about me and stuff. And and then writing was just I don't know. I guess it just always has been a way for me to work that stuff out. And now I'm much more clear on it, but I continue to find it just a really interesting thing. And I I've worked for a long time on on how to make language work with things that are really difficult or, or disturbing. And it interests me to do that. So I continue to do that because I think I have all these ideas about how to represent things that are unrepresentable or something. It just really interests me to try to do that. But and have you ever mean have you ever uh, been through therapy and like thought about it? Is there any kind of like that side of it, or is it? Uh, uh, um, the writing really took care of it. I mean, I, I mean, I was never like in danger of like being a bad guy. I mean, I always was really clear on on what was what was okay in the real world and what wasn't okay and. And why you know how things are much more much more fascinating and 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 and, and clear and I don't know attractive in in fantasy and how when you brought someone real into it there was all these responsibilities and there was moral issues and stuff I mean it was never I was never confused about that line but uh, I mean I went to therapy but that was more about like. Uh, that wasn't really so much about that material because the, the the my therapist was like had written her dissertation on Edgar Allan Poe, so she thought it was totally legitimate that I was interested in that stuff. But that was more about like um, what did you? Oh, so she had written her. That's a that's a good therapist to land with. Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> I was just luck. I was just like she well she worked with like uh, she worked with a lot of writers and then people weird people like Sylvester Stallone and people were her clients. Really? Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And Terry Gar, Terry Gar, <laughs> Mr. Mom. Yeah, I won't say her name, obviously, but um, she was more she was more working on the emotional stuff because of I had this tendency to 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 want to like help younger people and help writers and stuff like that, and I used to get too involved in their lives and I get really caught up in their shit and then I get really uh, overwhelmed and try to take care of them and I'd kind of lose the line where I could help and where I just became kind of like overbearing in my wanting to help them and she sort of helped me sort of figure out like you know why i was doing that and why why i shouldn't you know get too involved in the lives of fucked up young guys and why were you doing it do you know um I mean, is it trying like a, as a corrective she was you know it's real, the, the, the her answer is kind of like i don't know whether it's true or not it's like kind of like the it's like you know my mother was an alcoholic and i couldn't save her and and then you know i write these both of these books about my friend george miles and he was really troubled and i spent a lot of my youth taking care of him and yeah let's talk about george i mean that's obviously a central figure in your life yeah you wrote five novels called yeah. the george miles cycle all right so he was this kid i met when I, he was really young and uh he was 12 he was at my school because like i said i went from fourth to 12th grade he was like 12 and i was like 14 or something or 15 and I don't know. We just like, really connected, and he was a really brilliant kid, a musician, and we were really close. And, and when he got a little older, he got very bipolar. I don't know what happened to him, but something happened, and he became really with his bipolar, or schizophrenic, or something. And he just really had a, became had a, his life became very very difficult. And uh, and we were very very close, and he was always like my little brother or something to me. So so I would I ended up like taking care of him and worrying about him and all this kind of stuff and trying to save him and trying to make him happy and whatever else. And we had, there was sexual tension and confusion about romance between us, but nothing really happened until we were much, much later. But it was so, so, so I, I mean, that became a big part of my life was taking care of him or trying to help him and, and then writing these books for him and things. And then he ended up killing himself. And so it was, yeah, I was very, how old was he? He was 30 on his 30th birthday. So, but, um, uh, so that, that had a big impact on me, and she just said that I, 
had always wanted, because I couldn't save George and I couldn't save my mother, that I was trying to do it over and over and over. And she was right on that, on that sense. So, so I kind of figured out that that was like, you know, I like helping young writers and artists a lot. I really, it's a very important to me to do that, but I do not get involved in their psychological stuff anymore. Right. <laughs> so, but you were planning on writing the George Miles cycle of, of novels prior to him uh, taking his own life, correct? I mean, this is oh, something yeah, no, that goes he, way back into your childhood. Yeah. He, no, actually, he he <clears throat> he committed suicide while I was in Amsterdam, and I didn't know it for 10 years until after he, he commit, killed himself. I thought he just was hard to get in touch with for 10 years. And I, so, no, no um, so that, I didn't know until I'd written this book, Guide, which was the fifth book. That's when I found out right around then that he had killed himself, and I thought he was alive, so... So, um, no, I, so what was that like? I mean, finding out at that point, it was heavy. It was very heavy. Yeah. You know, cause I've been writing these books for him and also cause yeah, I don't know. It was intensely heavy. So yeah, I just, I just tried to figure out, I've spent like a year, like obsessively trying to find out what happened cause I didn't, couldn't find any trace of him and eventually figured out, found up, caught, found his mother and figured out what happened. But, um, but I'd heard that he, he had killed himself. So, but the, well, I mean, I started writing this series, but he wasn't, it wasn't called the George Miles cycle until later. It's like, there was a certain point where I thought, cause I wanted to write about violence and sex and all this stuff. And, and I wanted to do it in a very explicit and very uncompromising way. But I was always wanted to make sure that there was a balance there because I didn't want it to be, you know, like ugly and shocking and stuff. I know people think it is, but I, it's, I'm not interested in that at all. And so at a certain point I thought I can put, I should put George in there as the main figure and the main sort of uh, inspiration, because if it's him, I would never, ever do anything to hurt him, you know, it, it, and not, no, I would never go too far in my own head. So I asked him if I could do that, and he said, yeah. So so that's why he's there, is to kind of balance out the other thing and make it, you know, so that the, the books are always really protective of the younger characters, because they remind me of him. Interesting. And so what's the, I mean, what's the... Sex and violence as two things that are, I mean, they go hand in hand in your imagination. Uh, what's the relationship there? Like, how do you process that? Well, I don't know. They're, they're, they're both like, they're like things that, that make one completely irrational and they're things that defy language and define, defy like, you know, you can't really explain them. They're, they're, I, I'm interested in like the, what language can and can't do. I'm yeah, really, the, ina- the inadequacy of it. Exactly. And, and then they're both that way. I mean, you, you, you know, I mean, when you're having sex, you know, you really, you cannot be articulate. You say silly, terrible, stupid things. You might mean them, but you can't, you know, you, you're not, you lose that ability to articulate exactly what you're thinking or feeling with the person you're having sex with. It's just, you know, it's, you just say these cliches. And then I assume with violence, it's the same way. I mean, you just, you lose control and it's, and I'm interested in trying to represent like what happens when people do those. I mean, especially the combination because they're both so intense and they're both so important in a certain way. And it's like putting them together, it becomes like nuclear, you know, and it's such an, it's such an interesting challenge to try to try to write about that moment. Like, cause it happens like this, you know, but in a book I can make it like what the, what the guy's thinking, what the boy's thinking and just all the complicated things that are going on that they don't even know are going on. I don't know why. It's just, just it's super interests me as a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, have you ever been violent? I mean, have you ever, no. you don't strike me as a violent sword. <laughs> no, 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 never at all. Never. I've never been like that. I've never had any real acts of violence against me except, you know, stupid parent stuff. Yeah. yeah. So how do you work? I mean, you, you say you're a workaholic, you're doing a lot of different things, but like, can you describe, is there a typical day? Do you have a routine or is it just kind of, um, 
Well, it depends, but I mean, the blog, you know, uh, is like a full time job now. So I get up in the morning and yeah, I, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, yeah, yeah, you know exactly. Yeah, the um, I get up in the morning, I have my coffee, and then I do this because you know I talk to every single person every single day that that comments on my blog. I have. I respond to every single comment every single day. And that takes like three to four hours every morning to do. Wow. So that's a lot. And then, you know, making posts, as you well know, is a library labor-intensive and time-consuming thing. So I spend a lot of my day often working on the blog. And then when I have don't have to do that or when I decide I, can't, I just can't deal with this anymore, you know, I, I, I decide I love Paris. I go hang out with my friends or I work on my theater pieces or I work on my novel if I'm working on a novel. or What's, what, what part of Paris do you live in? The 10th, most people who, do, unless you know Paris well, you probably won't know it. It's, uh, it's not, there's nothing really there that's like, that you would ever go look at if you were a tourist, but it's becoming very, very, very trendy now, that area. Is that Canal Saint-Martin? No. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it is. I okay. live right on the Canal Saint-Martin. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Garde de l'Est is there that that's, that's, but there's nothing really, um, there's no like monuments there or anything. So yeah. sort of like the hip. It's kind of a hip neighborhood. It's now. becoming. It, when I first moved there, it was. It wasn't. It's. It's. It's been like the immigrant. It's like a. It's the center part of Paris, but it's like. It's it was. Um. It's very much like Northern African immigrants and things like that, and and Southern African immigrants as well. That was kind of the dominant thing, but now it's there's an intersection of like very trendy people and hip people and fashion, and it's actually quite exciting because they're mixing in this very interesting way. But right now it's becoming very hip. All the hip clubs are opening there and stuff. And David Lynch's club is near there. And you know. yeah, oh, he has a club over there. Yeah, what's it called? Silencio. Silencio. Yeah, have you been in there? No, it costs 170 euros to go in there. You're shitting me. Well, you have to have a membership. You have to buy a membership. What is it? It's, a it's like a private club. Like a men's club, except it's not for just men. It's like you know, you they have music and the theater and stuff, and but it's like this exclusive club, you know, for for like cool people, the coolest people in the world. Okay, so wait a minute, yeah. did he conceive this? Yeah, and he designed every single thing in it, all the furniture, all the thing, everything. Yeah. Okay, so it's not like some rich people were like, "Can we put your name on this?" No, he did everything. He really wanted to create his own club. Yeah. There's like a smoking room and it's a forest. You walk into the forest and smoke your cigarettes in there. <laughs> Fantastic. No, apparently it's fantastic. Apparently it's amazing, but I have not gotten an invitation. You have to wait till there's like a, you know, like a big whatever event that has their after party there that I get invited to. And so far I haven't gotten one of those yet. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So the blog that you're doing, and I've read this somewhere where you consider the blog kind of the central or one of the central components of your writing life now. I mean, yeah. Well, I, I, I said that before I wrote the the Marvel Swarm because at that point I was I couldn't figure out how to write a novel and do the blog at the same time it took me a long time to figure that out and what's the answer <laughs> um just really organizing your time really well yeah yeah because it's like and also because one of the reasons this the novel's like really baroque and really complicated and I think part of the reason it's that way is that I wanted to get so far away from the blog when I wasn't you know because the blog is just like hey how are you doing today right and this one is so like complicated and it was so hard to write so so I think that uh the the dichotomy helped me it was just like a completely different thing you know yeah but I mean it, okay so like another level of the question then regarding the blog is like I mean you take it seriously yeah yeah very and not all literary writers do when it comes to like the blogosphere or the web or yeah. whatever but you know yeah. you're answering every comment on you know you're interacting with your readers you're yeah. you're participating and there are some writers who wouldn't deign to do such a thing you know and yeah. how, how do you feel about it i mean how did you come to this point where you're was it always just a natural thing like oh let's do this this is a connect you know i'm connected to my yeah. readers this way this is great or did it was it a process did you have to come around on it um, it just kind of it just kind of evolved. I mean, there's this website this guy does about me, 
uh, about my work or whatever. And he asked me, he said, I'm going to do a poll on the site and I'm going to ask what people would most like for you to do. It, it would be, could be like a store. This is, one of them was a blog. He said, can I do this? And, and then if, would you be willing to do whatever they say? And I said, yeah. And I never thought they'd pick blog, but that's what they picked. So then but they, when I started, it was just like any other blog. I'd just put pictures like of whatever I liked or something. But then people started commenting on it saying, oh, you're Dennis Cooper. Blah, blah, blah. And it just, I didn't think about it. I just thought, well, you should talk to people when they comment to you. So I started commenting, writing back to them. And I just did it on the front page because I didn't, I was a klutz and I didn't know we didn't do that. But then people said, oh, Dennis Cooper talks to his fans. And so it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, then there were like, you know, what it is between like, you know, it depends, well, it depends between like 30 and 70 comments a day sometimes when it's really going. And, um, and what, about, what about traffic? I mean, how many people I, are coming through? I mean, it said, it, I think the press materials that I got for you said that you're sometimes getting like up to 80,000 hits a day. The, I stopped looking at it because it freaked me out, but it was, it's very high and it's gotten, I put it on Facebook now and now it's gotten much bigger. So I, I just don't want to think about it. it freaks me out because like when I'm talking to those people I don't think about I really just don't think about what other people the other people are reading it even though I know everybody reads them all. Well, no, so, that's that's sort of what's happened to me with this show. Is like now I look at analytics and I go, oh shit, people are listening. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird, out. right? Yeah, it freaks you out. Yeah. So I stop. I mean, and you can look on the blog and see, and I just don't want to know. I know it's very very popular. People every, everywhere I go, people are talking to me about it. So. No, but it's, you know, writers out are coming out of their ivory towers and actually yeah. interacting with readers. It seems like yeah. a no-brainer. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. That's the thing. It isn't, to me, it's just like, it's just the amount of time it takes, you know, but it, but but it's cool because now it's got this big readership and I have people do guest posts and it's like, so I can actually help them. I mean, they, it's gotten such a high readership now that like, because there are a lot of artists on there and stuff. And if I'll do it, I'll say, I'll say, you know, I'd like to do a day about your your visual art and like okay so i do up there about their visual art and they'll get calls from galleries wanting to show them and stuff so so that's really cool you know and uh so it's a really turned out to way to, to help this community of artists you know and um i don't know i mean if i really think about it i'll probably stop doing it because it is kind of crazy but it just feels absolutely natural to me it's like a really easy thing to do and it really seems to help people and and then i try to turn them quickly from fans into just friends or colleagues, you know, and actually more participants, it sounds like. Yeah. And there are a lot of people at this point that come on there, don't really read my books. They just like the blog. And that's really cool too. They don't, you know, they don't necessarily have an association with my books. Yeah, no, I found that as well. I mean, when I first started, uh, with my book came out, I started blogging and I found that like, or it started to occur to me. I'm like, a lot of these people just yeah. like the blog. Yeah, exactly. You know? It's, like, it's kind of nice. And that's fine. Yeah, it's you know, nice, that's, yeah. that's fine. And, and um, you know, I, do you feel like that there might be some sort of threshold like, do you sense, like, okay, I'm answering 75 comments and it's taking me three hours every yeah, morning to yeah, do this. Like, yeah. there's got to be some point of no return where you're like, I can't do 500 comments. That, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Can you sense that that might be coming where you might have to reconfigure how you do it? Or Well, the weird thing is is that, is that even though the readership has grown and grown and grown, it's always about the same number of comments. It's so that a lot of people just simply don't want to comment there. You know, when you, if you don't comment there at all, you see how public it is. And I think they're like, I don't want to. Yeah, some but, people are skittish. They, just, yeah. they, want, they don't want anything to do with it. But there are certain people who just, they just jump in. And then once you're, once you're commenting there, you kind of forget that everybody's looking at it all the time. And that everybody's reading your words. So, I don't know. It's never gotten, I mean, it's gotten up to where, I mean, the, you know, there, were, there was a period when I was getting like 200 comments a day and I couldn't do it. And but now it's 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 pretty much dated between like thirty five to seventy every day, and it's like I can do that, and it it's I don't know why it doesn't go higher, but it just doesn't. And then as far as your uh, book publishing future goes, you know the Marbled Swarm is the new novel. Um, what do you see for yourself 
going forward, or do you have any idea? Um, I'm still between. I mean, this book is really complicated, and the voice is really like it took me a long time to develop it, and it's such a dense, baroque voice. And I want to get rid of it because I try to change my style every every single book. So right now, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to get rid of the voice. And then after I get rid of it, I'll, I'll start playing around with my voice and seeing, trying to find like what my what would be interesting to do with my whatever skills I have next. But it's, I have some basic ideas, but it's going to be probably at least a year before I start anything. So, and you change your voice every single book. You make Since a conscious, cycle. I try to. You make a conscious decision. Yeah, because like my latest thread was like very, very fast and sort of like a documentary. It's, I was thinking of it as a documentary. And then the, this, I wrote this book called The Sluts, and it's all set online, and it's all mimicking the way people talk online. And then there's this book, God Junior, that's like very li- kind of more lyrical. And I'm just trying to every time I want the, I, I just try to completely reinvent my voice every time, and see how far I can take it. So yeah, I don't know. Otherwise, I get bored. Okay, know? so how do you? I mean, this could be a very long conversation, I think. But I mean, to change your voice, you're yeah. just testing things out on the page or on the screen or whatever, and, and looking at it and. Just you know, how does it? Are you hear, you're obviously hearing it. Like, how do you change your voice? I feel like a lot of writers just have kind of a distinct. Yeah. You just you can you can read like a few lines and it's like that's so and so. But um, are you purposefully trying to make it difficult to do that with you? <laughs> yeah, because I think I do have. I mean, people say that there's something about my voice that's very characteristic, but but I don't think of as. I, I do like so much rewriting. I don't feel like I have a natural voice. I think I must have certain rhythms and certain things that I, I like to do, but but it doesn't. I don't feel like I have a, a, a voice that I can rely on. So and I don't think I. I just don't think I'm that kind of writer or something. So so I just so I I just I mean I just um, I just get rid of everything and go back to really just what I what I tend to do between books is write porn because. Um, because just make, write porn because it's like it has some tremendous force to it and you can just like get so much of it out and it really it kind of breaks my voice down because when you write porn you just write all this terrible shit so just porn literature not for anybody to see right it's li- it's literally just to get just to just write 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 and not have any art in it at all you know what? that actually sounds i mean as a writing exercise as a way to sort of like i don't even know like expel or just work through uh, energy levels, or get yourself to the next thing. That actually, I can actually see. Yeah, the point of that. That sounds kind of brilliant, actually. Well, yeah, just because you know, because you know, when if you're, you know, you get excited when you, porn makes you very excited, and, and so you have this fuel, this like really good, and you can just go 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 go. You don't have to think about anything. You just like follow your sexual fantasy. It's actually, I find, I find it very helpful as a way to clean my palate or something. And sometimes you find things even when you're doing that that are kind of interesting that you can use. Like just like a scene or a line or of dialogue, just, yeah, just I mean, yeah, something, yeah, maybe, yeah, because sometimes you a witty exchange, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah, sometimes maybe. Well, actually, I write about sex because I, I guess that kind of is a special case, <laughs> yeah, right. No, that's interesting. I've never heard of that. That's unique, and like yeah. I, I'm always fascinated when writers find, um, you know, I hate to use the word process in the context of art because mm. it's just overused, but right. you know what I'm saying. Like you find like a process that works for you, yeah. that's very individual, and yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, it, 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 you could try it. It's really, it's, it's, it's interesting. It, it might work for you. It's like, I've several people I know have tried it, and they said, yeah, that's really true. It does. It's, it's All interesting. Right. Everybody sure. listening, <laughs> this is the Dennis Cooper write porn writing exercise. <laughs> it will lead you to your next masterwork. Yeah, um, guaranteed. So where can people find your blog? Uh, it's Dennis Cooper dot blogs dot 
blogspot.com, I think. All right, I'll check on that, and I'll <laughs> I'll be sure to get it clear on the on the back uh, back end of the show. But um, it's great to talk to you. Yeah, it's nice. Thank, Thank you, you so much for taking the Thank time. Thank you, I appreciate it a lot. All right, everybody, there you have it. That's the program. That is Dennis Cooper. His latest novel is called The Marbled Swarm. It is available now from Harper Perennial. You can check him out at dennis-cooper.net, or you can check him out at dennis-cooper-theweaklings.blogspot.com. He has a robust online presence, folks. Check it out. He also has a Facebook presence if you are a, you know, if you are a Facebook person and want to track him down on Facebook. This show has a web presence as well. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod, where you can keep up with all the latest shows and news and whatever. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, one last thing, one last plea. If you like the show, please go rate the show on iTunes. Give it a nice rating, folks. Pretty please. Uh, write a nice review if you have a couple of minutes. It really helps get the word out, and it helps us get better placement uh, in the iTunes universe. So speaking of the iTunes universe and the Apple universe, I, I can't go over the whole uh, atomization thing again. I can't do it, the atomization of media. Uh, I can't talk about it anymore. It it's just it's too much. So instead, I'm going to leave you with something a little bit lighter and possibly something a bit inappropriate. Uh, it involves my dog, Walter who uh, has been scooting a lot. And if, if you're a dog owner, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Walter is a French bulldog. He's not a great athlete. He's a good dog. He's sort of a house dog. He just kind of hangs around. And uh, he has some, you know, he has uh, sinus issues. Um, and I don't know what happened to him, but he's been scooting lately. He's been uh, dragging his backside along the carpet, if that makes any sense. And I know from having dogs for years and years that when your dog is scooting, you need to take the dog in to have his anal gland expressed. That's right. So the vet or the dog groomer, or I guess you, if you're inclined to do that kind of thing on your own, will squeeze something in the dog's rectal area and will express the gland, causing some, uh, you know, some pretty foul business to be expelled from the animal. That's my understanding of it. I've never seen it. I've never done it. Uh, and I and I tell you this not to gross you out. I, I truly do uh, have no intention of grossing you out. Mostly what I want to do is uh, I want to talk about this because etymologically it fascinates me. The, uh, the verb express or the verb to express, the fact that it's used here in this context where you're expressing the gland, the anal gland. So uh, is, is that funny? Does that make you laugh? That makes me laugh. Uh, so much so that I've decided that it's my final thought for you today. I want you to think about this the next time somebody tells you that they need to express themselves or that they're trying to express themselves. Or the next time you hear Madonna's Express Yourself, this is what I want you to think about. Okay? You promise me? All right. Have a nice day, everybody. Express yourself. Uh, I apologize for this. Please forgive me. (laughs) 